Hi everyone, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Megan Kelly, who works as a therapist and a podcast host. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I was late. Nice. And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm straight, cis, white woman, and my pronouns are she, her. And I recently decided that I'm never going to go to brunch at a restaurant again. Whoa. Or at least in the foreseeable future. That's a pretty... It's a tall order. Yeah. What I... happened? Yeah, not what you think. Uh, oh, okay. My, my husband and I had a <laughs> night last night with some of our old restaurant friends. You know, we've... We've obviously, we all met together like, you know, 10 or so years ago, and we still keep in touch. We've all, you know, either gotten new jobs, gotten more education, or we're still in the service industry and we're just taking better care of ourselves. <laughs> and <laughs> we all just kind of came to this agreement that brunch is horrible. <laughs> it's, it's like just a time when servers are just like abused and Ugh. are always sleep deprived. And also the, I don't know, like as a... I can't tell you the last time I enjoyed brunch, like as a patron. So, mm. so I think I'll, I think I'm done for now. Okay. I mean, my minds might change, but yeah, I think I'll boycott brunch for a little while. There is a brunch, brunch restaurant. Will be okay without me, but okay. There is a brunch restaurant over here that opens at 11:30, which I feel like is a little late for brunch. For brunch. Uh, I'm also late. Sorry. Um, not too late, but I thought this recording was happening an hour later than it was. So luckily Sarah texted me, Hey, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> but also here I am. I want to make the here excuse are. that I looked at it when I was in a different time zone, but that totally didn't happen. <laughs> so I have no idea what was going through. I thought it was weird that we were recording on uh, odd hours of the day I would never suggest an auto <laughs> yeah uh like three to five instead of two to four I was like that's so weird but that's fine um, so yeah, I have like... no idea what was going on with me uh, but I'm here and it happens sometimes I keep a lot of calendars to keep myself straight uh and something got mixed up in my wires well I think the only reason anyone would know except for me and our guest is that you're saying it. You sound great. You sound, <laughs> you sound like yourself. I'm not being facetious. You sound wonderful. Awesome. <laughs> and you responded so, to my brunch comments very well. Oh, thank you. Taking offense. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I usually eat breakfast. I get hungry quite, yeah. quite soon after getting up. So, um, yeah. Yeah, man. I like, 
when I used when I used to go to brunch, I would like eat breakfast before because I'm like, well, y'all want to eat your first meal of the day at noon? Atrocious. It's too late. And also waiting in line and then like the servers are exhausted and no one's enjoying themselves. Yeah. You can make avocado toast at home. Which you can I did once and it wasn't good. Oh. Because so I guess you can't make it at home. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it was me that was the problem. I think it's just not good. I think the problem is is that you gotta have the avocados not whole. You have to have them in some sort of spreadable form because yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're whole, then it's like some of it falls off and then you're like, where did that go? Now, my next bite is not as full of avocado as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the woes of millennials nowadays. Yeah, big time. I mean, that and crippling, crippling debt. We could, we could draw a list, but how to eat it because we're, we're it's assumed like, that we eat it yeah, yeah, yeah as soon as you pick a piece off of an avocado it just instantly turns brown and then like where are you going to find it it's you're not looking for the same molecular <laughs> i did order breakfast this morning and i ordered avocado on my sandwich because that's acceptable because the bread the sandwich bread yeah. keeps them together uh, but it didn't come with avocado and instead came with bacon. So <laughs> I don't know what the universe is trying to tell me. Um, or it yeah, could just like it be a random thing. Very interesting. If it was reversed, I would I would completely personalize that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, oh, good Lord. Have you been watching the Survivor updates? Have I been watching Survivor? Yes. They're ca- no, they're casting. They're casting for the show right now, currently. Oh my goodness! Should how do you wait? I, how do you know this? Because for some reason, and I don't know if I did this or you, but we are following Jeff Probst on. <laughs> I our didn't do that. <laughs> I think I did when I tagged him in one of our posts. We have a long-standing. All right, so we're two episodes to- standing. Yeah, we're gonna have to tag him again. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Hey, Jeff Probst. Yeah, they start. I mean, on the website that wasn't updated since 2016, they say that they start calling in September. I mean, I think it's close to September, but it's it's not. Fall is coming. Yeah. So I looked at my sweaters. Said honestly, I looked at my sweaters. Say I was like soon. <laughs> um this is a, a yeah i love sweaters mm-hmm. i dig it yeah oh that's amazing do we have any housekeeping from our last episode my floors are clean what about you my floors are pretty clean i want to i want to just say that i said that i push carts into the cart return at grocery stores colloquially i would call them carriages uh Ooh. because i'm from the northeast and i didn't say that and I don't know why. I just want to, you know, acknowledge so like, that like that's a a, something of, I say. A bunch of Connecticut residents are just like silently screaming, and now they they're now they're satiated. Now they're yep. happy. Yeah, carriage. That's good. Carriage. The carriage return. So that's a that's a very that's a region specific word. Is that anywhere else? I don't think so. Um, we'll have to ask Matt, our previous guest, if he, cause he's from yeah. Massachusetts, if he, if that's what he says, but, um, well, no, my husband was very taken aback from... when he was like, what are you talking about? Well, and he's from California. So I wonder yeah. if it's even a different word, but our guest is from the Midwest. So we may be also to get uh, a new word that we can add to our role. That'll be our first question. The, the most important thing we right. find out from her <laughs> is that what, what she calls the 
implement you put groceries <laughs> yeah 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 that'll be good yeah Ooh. so that's it for yeah. my floors I think our floors are clean I think we're set um what a great job we're doing <laughs> <laughs> yahoo <laughs> join us after the break as we delve into our history lesson for this week Welcome back, everybody. Sorry, Sarah, you usually say that, so. And a double welcome back to you, Joanna. Now it is time for our history lesson. You're welcome. A history lesson is compiled facts in the form of a narrative describing history, obviously, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today's history lesson include an article entitled Depression, What is Burnout? from ncbi.gov, an article entitled The Fascinating History of Burnout by Ariana Huffington from LinkedIn, (laughs) our old favorite, wikipedia.org, who is very happy that I made a $5 donation recently, goodreads.com, and an article entitled Burnout, A Short Sociocultural History by William B. Sheffelli. No trigger warning today, thankfully, so enjoy the ride. First, we will start with early literary references to burnout. In 1599, William Shakespeare published The Passionate Pilgrim, which included the following lines. She burned with love, as straw with fire flameth. She burned out love, as soon as straw outburneth. The phrase burned out. Give me my Oscar. The phrase burned out is used here probably for the first time in a psychological sense to describe the process of energy exhaustion in relation to love. There are numerous other examples of descriptions of burnout symptoms in the sense that they document mental exhaustion and disengagement in people who used to be very dedicated and committed to their craft, their work, their trade. The story of the prophet Elijah from the Bible states that after winning several victories and performing miracles in the name of the Lord, capital L, he breaks down in the face of an impending defeat, plunging into deep despair and falling into deep sleep. This condition became known among priests as Elijah's fatigue Mm -hmm. and includes symptoms such as intense but exhausting commitment to a cause, disappointment, and isolation. I kind of like that because if you're feeling it, you're like, it's just all Elijah's fault. Yeah. Elijah Rock. Mm. I didn't know that, though. I didn't know about his story in particular. No, yeah. And we're definitely going to throw that into our uh, vernacular, Elijah's fatigue. <laughs> yeah, I just found definitely. some EF today. Just, I'll, <laughs> I'll text you in an hour. Yeah. Another example of a burnout case from the Bible is Moses, who at some point during the flight from Egypt becomes discouraged because he is given so much, yet his people are still not satisfied and continue demanding more, for example, demanding meat instead of manna. Mm. Now, while this example is valid and the Ten Commandments really was one of my favorite movies growing up. I, if I remember, these folks were former slaves and then they were in the desert for 40 years. Yeah. So a lot of the people were like, I don't, I wasn't enslaved. I don't know why I'm <laughs> wandering the desert. Still a good example. I'm just yeah, 
Yeah, and manna is bread, I believe, for those who mm-hmm. are unaware. I'll take I'll take meat. Good lord. All right. Best known fictional example of an individual suffering from burnout is the world famous architect Query, the main character in Graham Greene's 1960 novel A Burnt Out Case, who moves to Africa to live in a leper colony, with whom he identifies in various ways. Query has gloom-filled thoughts, is disillusioned, and suffers from fatigue, apathy, and cynicism. Similar to drug-addicted individuals, lepers become emaciated by their illnesses. The fact that Query identifies so strongly with these characters without a present illness of his own points to his mental state at the time. Mm. Let's talk about some social issues that brought about burnout. It has been argued that the emergence of burnout of the burnout concept is related to several broader social, economic, and cultural developments of the 1960s in America. Some specific developments may have contributed to the emergence of burnout in the human services sector. First, from the early 1960s onward, the war on poverty in the U.S. led to a large influx of idealistically motivated young people into human services professions. However, after struggling to eradicate poverty for a decade or so, they found themselves increasingly disillusioned. Their frustrated idealism was a defining quality of the burnout experience, gradually turning into despair and cynicism. Second, from the 1950s onwards, the human services underwent rapid changes as a result of greater government and state influence. Small-scale traditional agencies where work was considered a calling transformed into large modern organizations with formalized job descriptions. Viewed from this perspective, burnouts represent the price paid for professionalizing the helping professions from callings into modern occupations. Sorry, that makes me like think about how, okay, so we have to have everything ethically correct and we have to make sure that there's no room for error as, you know, an example like lawsuits or uh, harm coming to clients and, you know, and protecting protecting the service workers but this is telling us that that actually had a negative effect and Joanna Mm -hmm. you you and I have both worked in like intensive inpatient and outpatient settings and we know that a lot of the rules put in place were there for a reason because of like one situation but they really impeded the quality of life of the folks that were experiencing that treatment and this is a very a very good example everything that we do in healthcare is very manualized we have to follow things to a T which is literally only covering our butts at times. Yeah. CYB. Mm -hmm. Additional cultural developments seem to have contributed to the emergence of burnout in the last quarter of the 20th century. Since World War II, the importance and roles of traditional social communities and networks such as the church, the neighborhood, and the family have gradually eroded. I mean, honestly, like, I don't know many of my neighbors' names, and we live very close to each other. Yeah. According to, according to Richard Sennett, this is the result of the emergence of, quote, flexible capitalism, a system that replaced traditionally rigid, homogenous, and predictable social institutions with more flexible and continuously changing ones. This development encourages social fragmentation. Simultaneously, a narcissistic culture developed characterized by transient, unrewarding, and even combative social relationships that produce self-absorbed, manipulative individuals demanding the immediate gratification of their desires, but remaining perpetually unsatisfied. A good modern example of this phenomenon is an individual's refusal to wear a mask to protect others as they feel their rights are infringed upon. 
So that last sentence was an opinion of mine, but the individualism is definitely something that can be pretty well identified in our culture that has caused like a huge increase in depression. Like Joanna, like you said, we there's a there's not a lot of neighborhoods, well, depending culturally speaking, where you're going to know everyone in town. We rely very heavily on institution now, and that's it's not a, it's not a great thing. Yeah, I will say my neighborhood I know in a broader sense, like from a Facebook group, uh, but I don't know my like specific. I only know like maybe two of my neighbors by name and then the others I know by sight and like waving. Like regarding flexible capitalism too, I feel like a lot of that has to do with most young folks have to rent still. So they are in places for a couple of years or Mm -hmm. they stay long and you know, they aren't that like what my husband and I are going through right now. We can't, we can be happy with where we are, but we can't be overly invested because we literally need to save the money for (laughs) when we own our own home. Oh, it's wild. All right. Let's move on to the history and development of the idea of burnout. Joanna, how's my sound now? I'm getting oh, it sounds up. great. Awesome. Oh, feels very velvety. You can keep that if you want. Maybe not. <laughs> okay, sure. The identification of, quote, burnout as a health condition happened in the 1970s. American psychologist Herbert Freudenberger and Christina Malash, PhD, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, pioneered the work. They use the term to describe the consequences of severe stress and high pressure in, quote, helping professions. Doctors and nurses, for example, who sacrifice themselves for others would often end up being, quote, burned out or exhausted, listless, and unable to cope, not just with the work that they do, but it leaks into their personal lives as well. Freudenberger is credited with coining the term and bringing it into modern usage. In the 1970s, he was working at a free substance abuse clinic in New York City. He was putting in punishing hours, as were others in the clinic, some of whom ended up quitting. Suffering from what author Pascal Shabbat in his book Global Burnout describes as nervous breakdowns. Hmm. Fun fact, Pascal Shabbat, a Belgian philosopher, wrote a story entitled Shabbat le Robot, or Chatbot the Robot, about a chatbot (laughs) that has taught philosophy. It is programmed to recognize definitions, modes of reasoning, and philosophical styles. The chatbot is then confronted by a journey, a jury of renowned thinkers and who need to assess whether or not he is a quote philosopher. Okay. Exit fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> After a period of time, Freudenberger agreed to take a vacation with his family. As he had been working late hours the night before their departure, he couldn't get out of bed the next morning and they missed their flight. Trying to make sense of the experience, he recorded himself talking about it. And when he played the tape back, he was surprised by the anger and exhaustion he could hear in his own voice. He decided to look into the mental well-being of the other caregivers who worked at his clinic, and he was struck by how many parallels there were between them and the folks with addiction they were caring for. At that time, the term burnout was a slang term to describe extreme drug drug use, similar to the current use of the horrible word of junkie used to describe folks struggling with addiction. But this was when Freudenberger started using it for those working at the clinic and everyone got on board. Um, Chatbot writes, Shabbat writes, (laughs) the the caregivers have been ravaged by forces as toxic as the drugs their patients abused. They were overworked, perhaps overly idealistic and certainly overcommitted. Like substance abuse, burnout is an illness of immoderation. I love that last line. Yes. 
Thank I have you. some thoughts about it. Do you want to give them? Yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, just the the overly idealistic and the illness of immoderation, like kind of slowly puts the blame on whoever's experiencing burnout instead of like mm. the systems they're in. So um, <laughs> yeah, I get like it. Addiction, which is <laughs> yeah. also not the fault of folks that are struggling with it. Damn, good. For, that's like that's like slapping imposter syndrome on someone who's grown up in an oppressed group, and then being like, "It's your fault." Just, just be confident. Yeah. Love it. I don't love it, but good observation. Thank you. All right. The term burnout also has its origins in the effects of a fire, as Freudenberger vividly put it. "Quote: As a practicing psychoanalyst, I have come to realize that people, as well as buildings, sometimes burn out." Under the strain of living in our complex world, their inner resources are consumed as if by fire, leaving a great emptiness inside. Although their outer shells may be more or less unchanged, only if you venture inside will you be struck by the full force of the desolation. Around that same time, Christina Malash had gotten her PhD, was studying, and she was studying how people responded to crisis. She was starting her research career at Berkeley at the time. She began by interviewing people in service sectors, including healthcare workers, but also police officers and ministers. And she started to notice common themes. She began asking if the term burnout described their experience. What she found was, what she found was that it was more than just a psychological concept. Quote, the people themselves said that this term captured what they were feeling. Fun fact, Dr. Maslash was known for stopping the Stanford prison experiment which was conducted at Stanford University for six days, August 15th through the 20th in 1971. In the study, psychology professor Philip Zimbardo assigned volunteers to be either guards or prisoners by the flip of a coin in a mock prison that Zimbardo himself was serving as superintendent. Early reports on experimental results claimed that students quickly embraced their assigned roles with some guards enforcing authoritarian measures and ultimately subjecting some prisoners to psychological torture while many prisoners passively accepted the psychological abuse and by the officer's requests, actively harassed other prisoners who tried to stop it. Less fun fact, the US Office of Naval Research funded this experiment. Um, I, while this fun fact is extended, it's just kind of points more to Dr. Maslach's character um, yes. and her commitment to ethics and caring for the professionals that she was both teaching and working with. Absolutely. Uh, so she had difficulty finding a publisher as, as science journal editors dismissed the idea as mere popular science and not worthy of academic journals. So in 1976, she published it in a magazine called Human Behavior. She was flooded with responses from individuals who shared their own stories of burnout. That's how she stumbled on what would become her career. Quote, my interest in the topic really was stoked by the experiences of the people that I kept talking to over time, and that's true even now. I'd be interviewing people, and they were getting angry and upset and crying. This was not something trivial. People tell me stories about how this has affected their family and how they've made decisions they now wish they hadn't. Along with Susan E. Jackson, now a professor at Rutgers, she developed the Maslach Burnout Inventory, or MBI, a widely used framework for identifying and measuring burnout. The tool breaks burnout down into three dimensions of exhaustion, cynicism, and negative self-worth, and six workplace risk categories, workload, sense of control, reward, workplace relationships, fairness, and values, 
and fairness and values alignment. The Maslach burnout inventory was also the framework the World Health Organization used last year when it added burnout to its international classification of diseases and related health problems. So talking about burnout and the pandemic, of course, in some form, burnout has always been with us. But as the pandemic has intensified, it has intensified exponentially as well. Starting back in March 2020, in cities and communities all over the world, we expressed our appreciation for frontline workers of all kinds, whether they were working in hospitals or grocery stores or making sure those working remotely could get food and household supplies dropped at their door. They were putting themselves at risk, not just of infection, but of burnout, which hit them hard in the first wave of the pandemic. And soon burnout was at the center of the conversation among frontline workers and among those of us working at home, staring at screens all day, trying to create boundaries between our work lives and our home lives. And we can see the toll burnout is taking. According to a report released in December 2020, Americans' rating of their own mental health has dropped to its lowest point since the survey began nearly two decades ago, was only 34% saying their mental health is excellent, a nine-point drop since 2019. And no doubt burnout will continue to be a challenge will continue to be a challenge long after the pandemic ends. So much of our lives right now is out of our control. That's why it's even more important to be deliberate about employing tools and strategies in our daily lives to manage our stress and avoid burnout. That hits close to home. Absolutely. (laughs) Possible. Uh, Join us after the break. We will talk to Megan Kelly about being a therapist, a podcaster, and working with burnout. Welcome back, everybody. Today we have Megan Kelly with us. She is a licensed mental health counselor associate in the state of Indiana. She graduated from Antioch University in New England in 2019 and has worked in various mental health settings throughout her time in graduate internships and postgrad professional settings. She has experience providing intensive in-home therapy to families using the multi-systemic therapy model and is currently working as a private practice therapist in a rural community. Outside of work, she enjoys snuggling her cats, going for walks, practicing yoga, and working on her podcast about burnout called Mental Status. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, First of all, before any other questions get asked, I just want to answer the very first question, which is grocery cart. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for reminding us. Yes. When you yeah. studied in New England, did you hear anyone else call it a carriage? I actually, so going to Antioch, um, it was a distance-based program. So I okay. was able to, I was at the time living in Minneapolis. So I was able to study and live in Minneapolis and do their program online. So no, I didn't hear that. No, no carriage <laughs> okay. nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I, what, a, what a good topic to have on our show, especially now. This is just something that's alive and well for so many people in our field. So we are very excited to have you on. Uh-huh. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah. Um, so my work right now, I'm working for a small group practice in rural Indiana. Um, and a lot of that work has been sort of generalized, but after a while of working there, what I really started to notice was this sense of 
people just being burnt out in general. It doesn't matter if they were in the mental health field or the healthcare field. Um, everything, you know, as you went over in that history lesson was really intensified by the pandemic. A lot of clients staying home with their kids and their families and their pets, trying to, trying to balance everything in life, you know, trying to keep it quote unquote, the same, even though nothing was the same. And so I started noticing that popping up a lot in the work that I was doing with clients. And what I was noticing about that was it resonated really deeply with my own experience as a therapist, um, my own experiences with burnout, having worked in a couple of different settings where, um, you know, the environment was really fast paced or there was a lot of expectations placed on me. Um, you know, it was mentioned earlier that there needs to be some consideration for the systemic issues mm -hmm. that are related to burnout, which, um, you know, I'm associate level, so I'm still technically waiting for my full license, but even, and especially being an associate, it becomes incredibly clear how, how so many of those systemic issues can lead early career mental health professionals to burning out so fast. Um, so it was something that affected me personally and professionally, and it was affecting the people that I was working with. And I just really felt the need to start talking more publicly about it. Um, because especially among mental health professionals, I found that those conversations are kept largely behind closed doors in supervision. It can be really hard to talk to your own supervisor about it because that person is supervising you. So you don't, at least for myself, I didn't necessarily want to go into those meetings saying, hey, I might be burned out, like, but please don't fire me. Um, <laughs> so I found it really important to talk about this openly with other professionals and talk about it with the people that I was working with to you know, demystify it, destigmatize de it. Like it's, it's a huge concern for people in the helping professions. So that's, that's a large part of what I'm focusing on right now um, in my, in my private practice and as well uh, in my own, you know, creative pursuits. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks. I feel like people, <laughs> yeah. if, there, if any therapist listening, they were just like, holy, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Cause that lack of safety that we have when it comes to supervision mm -hmm. it, in a perfect world that would extend to that role in that relationship, but it, it, it really is the opposite and disclosing something like that can really cause you a lot of harm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Not to mention that if you are in the same system as your supervisor, they're probably also burnt out as well. So, um, <laughs> they're not going to be approaching the situation as, um, you know, yeah. I mean, they may not have the resources to be able to help because they're not in a place where they can be as useful as needed because they're burnt out. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've not every situation that I've been in, but a few situations I've had supervisors where it was getting to the point where I, I had to say something because things were not okay for me. And I can't tell you the number of times I heard them say, well, just make a self-care plan for the weekend. And I just wanted to rip my hair out. It's like, that's not, I'm sorry. That's not the issue. Like, <laughs> so yeah, it's completely hypocritical, hypocritical too. Cause we would yeah. never say to clients or someone who's actively suicidal. Okay. Well, let me know what your safety plan is. And I'll talk to you next week. We would, 
we would carry out the situation. We would be supportive of them. We would use all the tools we have available. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, there's a level of responsibility, um, especially to help associate level, but all, all levels of experience. If you are a supervisor, um, in a position of power at an organization to, to, to watch out for the folks who you, who are working for you. Megan, can you clarify just the verbiage of associate therapist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it may be akin to, um, you know, pre-licensed professional. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm currently pursuing my full licensure to practice independently in the state of Indiana. I know it varies across the board for every mm-hmm. single state, which is what it's also really frustrating, but I know. Um, <laughs> we could talk yeah. about that for hours, but yeah, yeah. thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in that process of getting all those supervised hours and fingers crossed it'll happen okay. this year. So yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. So talking about the pandemic and burnout is basically almost the same thing, but how did the pandemic affect your work as a therapist or affect your perspective on burnout? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So when the pandemic started, I was still living in Minneapolis and I was doing that intensive in-home multi-systemic therapy. So for your listeners who are not familiar with that, um, that model, it is, it's an intensive in-home process where at least the way my organization was doing it, we were going to people's homes at least three times a week for an hour each time, um, working specifically with the parents or caregivers of children who were involved in uh, the juvenile justice system or who were referred by children's case management. So kid, kids who are struggling with some pretty, pretty serious behaviors and needs. Um, So that work in and of itself was really difficult because I was on the road a lot. I was driving all over the metro area covering in Minneapolis, it's Hennepin County, which is just, it's a big county Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of traffic. And in the winter, when you've got snow, it's just, it's a whole thing. (laughs) So, yeah. So like those, I could count those things as like environmental factors to, to burnout and stress that were just largely outside of my control. Um, So when the pandemic hit, everybody started going online. All of a sudden I was doing three times a week therapy with families whose kids were maybe in the background or somewhere just off screen, trying to do three plus hours a week of really intense problem solving types of therapy. And at the time my roommate was a teacher, first year teacher. So our household was having a really great time. (laughs) Definitely. Um, definitely. She, she was trying to teach um, out in the living room and I was in my office with the door closed and there would be moments where both of us would, you know, we'd finish up with our tasks for the day and we'd both walk out into the kitchen and be like, Oh my gosh, like what is happening right now? Um, so it was, it definitely, um, it blurred a lot of the lines between home and work, which I think wouldn't, it's probably not unfamiliar to most people who had to go to virtual work, you know, like you're bringing it literally into your house. And if you were not used to that prior to the pandemic, that, that can make it really difficult to have the mental space between here's my desk and my technically my office. And just beyond that door is my family, my pets, the activities that I want to do, the things that I want to do that I can't because I'm stuck inside 
it's, it's all, it's all together. Um, so that it was difficult, but I also feel like there was part of it for me that kind of helped prevent some of my burnout just for the fact that I was no longer spending from like 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. driving to all of my appointments, waiting in parking lots, finding a place to go to the bathroom at a local gas station, eating fast food. Like I was at least able to be in a comfortable place. Um, But that was counterbalanced by having fewer boundaries around being at work, which had already felt like there was not a lot of boundary there because it's my personal car and then my business, a lot of stuff. Um, so it just, it, I want to say it kind of evened out, like it took away some of the stressors for me, but then other ones were added. So, yeah. That is yeah. such a good answer, especially that last line. Like there were so many things that we were just comfy and happy with. Like it felt like a very long snow day on, on certain days, but then other yeah. days it was like, Oh no, this is like a you know, kind of like a watered down prison. This is yeah. not, this is not something we chose. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. How do you think your personality is represented in your therapy? That's a good question. Um, well, before ever becoming a therapist, I would have always identified myself as being fairly introverted and shy. So it's, it's kind of interesting because when I'm working with my clients, it's not that I'm not myself, but I'm able to be the more outgoing version of myself. And over time, as I've learned new skills or gained more experience, um, it's allowed some of my confidence to be able to come through, but also I've learned a lot of things that I don't actually know. And I've become more comfortable saying that to a client. Like I don't know what the answer is and I can't give it to you. Um, so that's, you know, personally been really liberating for me to be able to take down that, that sort of man or woman behind the curtain sort of thing and just say, this is me, this is who I am. Um, I've been told by a lot of clients that, uh, I seem too calm. (laughs) Um, and I've had a few of my adolescent clients be like, you know, when I first met you, I thought that you were probably like a yoga teacher. And I was like, well, actually I am. So nice. (laughs) Thank you for the compliment. Um, Yeah. Thanks. I'm glad you can, you can recognize that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think overall, I, I was never really a fan of the blank slate therapist perspective. I understand and respect if there are therapists who want that line that's their boundary to navigate, but it never felt authentic to me. It didn't feel like I was actually connecting if I was maintaining such a clinical distance in a line of work that is inherently very personal and intimate. So I've just allowed myself to be me. People can talk about my tattoos. Like if I make a mistake or if I end up like spitting out my drink because I'm coughing on it, you know, in the middle of a session, like that just, it happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's okay to drink in the middle of a session for water or hydrate. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I just try to, to be genuine and relaxed and kind of cop to my mistakes or my lack of knowledge when that comes up. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
I think that's what a lot of people work a very long time towards. So that is a great skill to have to continue to strengthen. I I appreciate that. I mean, that does not mean there are not times where I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like I need to know this and I don't know, but yeah. (laughs) Well, you're right. Therapy, like most fields and Joanna and I have a um, musicianship background. The more you know about something, the more you realize you don't know, and that can be Mm -hmm. hard to hold. Yep. Um, But absolutely. That's the price that comes with educating yourself constantly, being a lifelong student. Yeah, hundred percent. So, what is most difficult about being a therapist, (laughs) and what is what is something that you love? Mm, Most difficult. Um, I think for me, because I, I am the type of person who likes to process out loud. Um. You know, so in, in respecting all of the legal and ethical responsibilities I have to my clients, there's the very obvious, like, I can't share information about what I learned throughout the day. I can't talk about a client. I, I can talk in generalizations. Mm. Like today was really difficult. I had a case with CPS, the details were really hard and I struggled in this way. Um, but I think what makes it hard is there, there are a lot of jobs that you can do where you can talk really specifically about what's going on and people can understand that, but not being able to do that outside of consultation and supervision, it can make, inf- it can make them feel isolating, right? Like it's hard to carry all the things that we hear and the things that our, our clients tell us. There's only so much that we can do in supervision. And if you have really good supervision or your own therapy, that can be a release. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's hard sometimes to walk in an isolated space, you know, day after day, week after week, hearing some of the really difficult things that clients bring to the room. Um, but on the flip side, that's, I won't say that I love that aspect of it, but I do love the fact that I can provide some type of open and accepting space, hopefully open and accepting to my clients where they can talk about the things that they really need to, um, where for some of them, maybe they haven't felt like they had that opportunity either because growing up, they weren't given the opportunity or they weren't aligned with it, or they haven't had the resources. Um, maybe they came from a background where mental health was not taken seriously. Um, I can't say this happens with every single client because obviously not, but for those clients who eventually, you know, they come in and they say, I'm really glad that I did this because even just talking about this stuff helps me. Every time I hear that, I'm like, yes, like, I I love this. Even if it's not specifically me making those changes or making it better, just the fact that this space is here is something that I really like. So nice. <laughs> I think we're both really quiet because we're, we're like, vibing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so obviously, we can all get a lot of inspiration from those aha moments with clients. But what do you think brought you specifically into the field of therapy? What inspired you? I, I think similar to a lot of folks who come into this field. Can I swear on this podcast? Big time. Okay. <laughs> I had my own shit, right? Like mm-hmm. I had, I had a lot of my own shit. Um, so, I mean, 
for the listeners who can't see my face, I'm a white cis heterosexual female. Um, I do live in the Midwest. I grew up in a privileged household. We weren't, you know, high SES, but we're middle-class. Um, and you know, I experienced some things, especially in my young adult life that really shook my world that I, I wasn't prepared for because I had a privileged background. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that happened to me when I encountered it. I was like, I have no idea what's going on right now. I don't know how to handle this. Um, things from, you know, like young love and having a first, a first boyfriend cheat on me to, um, I got married when I was 23 and I was divorced right before my 25th birthday. So married young, divorced young. Um, I struggled with alcohol. And so it took me a few years to really understand how badly that was affecting my relationship with myself and with others and my work. So, you know, going through getting sober on my own without 12 step, without rehab, um, all of those things, yeah, obviously I didn't do them all by myself. You know, I had people around me who helped me through those processes, whether it was my parents letting me stay in their, their basement when I was divorced and had lost a job or having friends who were able to provide me with a space to process things out loud. Um, but honestly, like I had some really good therapists some honestly very good people who, um, they, they gave me that space and some really good questions for me to think about as I was going through those things. Um, and I had thought about going into the helping professions or something having to do with working with other people for a long time. So I, I got my English degree from the University of Minnesota, and I started working in marketing and copywriting. Um, I know that's some people's jam, and I actually listened to the last episode with the copywriters, like, yeah, this is so cool. Like, I love that that can be a good use of copywriting because I saw a lot of, in my own personal opinion, kind of slimy uses for copywriting, yep. literally selling things that people don't need. Um, and I just, I wasn't happy in that line of work. I'd always considered being a yoga teacher, being a therapist, I never knew about how to go about doing it. Um, and I was talking about that with one of my therapists and, you know, he, he had his practice in an old converted factory. It was an artist's loft. There were like super cool pictures all over the walls. I was like, this is exactly what I would want. So cool. Um, and I started talking about wanting to do this and he was like, Oh, then do it. You know, like you can do that. Um, there will be financial considerations and time considerations, but you can do it. Uh, and he was actually the one who pointed me toward Antioch in the first place, which is quite honestly, it was the only place I applied. I was like, if I don't get in, that's cool. I got in. It's like, all right, <laughs> I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was trying to give the same type of help that I had received during all of those points in my life where I was really struggling. Thank you so much for your vulnerability. I, I think we dismiss how challenging our early and mid and even late twenties can be by mm. just making jokes about it. And it is actually just a hard, hard time when we are navigating without our senses. Mm -hmm. um, yep. 
and that and just the fact that you had some folks just kind of hanging out letting you know that it was okay to feel that way and also giving you tips for where to go next that's it makes all the difference that's that's Mm -hmm. great absolutely so now that you do therapy what is people's reactions when you tell them what you do for a living and what would you like the reactions to be yeah so I mean, I can talk about when I first told people I wanted to be a therapist and that I was going to school, um, and I was mostly just telling my parents, but both of them were like, huh, really? Like, <laughs> you're so quiet and shy. Huh. Like you want to talk to people all day. Um, but once they got used to that idea, um, I actually mostly don't bring it up a whole lot anymore. Um, I used to, cause it was something I was very proud of. Obviously it's something I was working toward. I've had the really obvious responses of, oh, well, I, I got this family member over here. Like maybe you can talk to them and be like, mm, conflict of interest. Sorry. Um, so that's, that's probably been a pretty common response is people either kind of laughing about it, kind of jokingly suggest that I talk to somebody in their life. Um, I have had the responses of, oh my gosh, that's so needed. I could never do that. I could never listen to people talk all day about their problems. Um, Usually my response internally is like, that's, that's good for you to know about yourself. Cause you know what, then you probably shouldn't do it. Like (laughs) there's a lot of trade, (laughs) not a bad trade. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You're honest with yourself. I like that. Um, And I think during the pandemic, a lot of the response was, oh my gosh, so awesome. Like we need people like you right now, which is good to hear because it's, it's nice to, to hear that people recognize the need for mental health services. Um, but like a lot of things similar to maybe what nurses are experiencing or doctors or all these other industries, it's like, yes, you really appreciate us. So let's, let's see it. Let's see some of those resources coming in. Let's see some other efforts other than the ones we're putting in. So I think what I would want to hear more is people's actions. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, Joanna, I'm noticing a trend of we are either, there's like the exploity answer, like come talk to my nephew, or there's the, (laughs) the dismissal, like, oh, that's, don't analyze me, or oh, that's strange, let's change the subject, or... Or like that kind of idealization. I don't mm-hmm. know. Rarely do we just hear like, oh yeah, cool. I am an accountant, you know, yeah. move on. <laughs> yep. And to speak yeah. to also, you know, that, that reaction from your parents about like, oh, but, but you're shy. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Cause like when I first meet people, I am quiet and shy. Um, and it's so hard. Cause like therapist is not a personality trait. It's no. the job that we do. <laughs> it doesn't mean that 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 says something about my personality. I mean, like maybe a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, but yeah. 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 To think that to be a therapist means that you are naturally quote unquote extroverted and you love spending all of your time with other people and just talking all the time. It's like, that's, I've met so many therapists who are the exact opposite. They love Mm -hmm. what they do and then they need to go home and sit in silence for several hours. So (laughs) yeah. Well, you met two more today. Yep. All right. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So you did talk a little bit about how your identity itself 
how it manifested in your 20s with all mm-hmm. these changes that have happened for you, how do you think it helps or hinders your practice? Yeah. So when I was working in Minneapolis, working with families in their homes, um, I mean, it became really clear really quickly to me how my privileged background was often at odds with the lived experiences of the people who I was working with. Um, people who have either been involved with the system for a very long time or, you know, systemic racism uh, was adding them to the system um, for, for whatever reason. And just recognizing that even though my organization and my position was entirely separate from the juvenile justice system and from case management, because of the fact that I was coming in per their recommendation or referral, I was part of that system. And so it being part of that system made it really clear to me how, how trust needs to be earned. You can't just walk into anybody's house and say, here I am to help you with your family and then be like, hooray, this is fantastic. Um, I can't say that I really expected that going into that job, Um, but there were moments where looking back, I can absolutely 110% understand the hesitance and people feeling quite put off by this whole this whole thing that was being put on them. Um, but at the time it felt really frustrating, largely because I had productivity requirements and there was a lot of pressure from the top down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really early experience for me in understanding how, even if I had good intentions, if I'm part of a system, my good intentions don't matter until I can prove through my actions to these people and my clients that, that I'm there for them. And that I can still cause harm unintentionally by being part of that system. Um, in moving to rural Indiana, there are a lot there are a lot of differences in culture that I've experienced here. Coming from living in a major metropolitan city for most of my life, I have a lot of preconceived notions about the way things are um, that are not necessarily reflected here, and. I've had to check a lot of my own biases and expectations for what I think things should be. Um, Because people may look like me does not mean that they have the same lived experience or that they have the same ideals or values or expectations. Um, So there's, there's been a lot of learning and growing through that process. Wow. That makes me (laughs) think about, I know, I know that's a good answer. (laughs) We're just floored by your answer. (laughs) That, that really makes me think about how like white individuals, especially white therapists, we are told by the media that we are the saviors. We are told oh. by movies and TV that we come in and we save everyone. So even though like, yeah, we all, we all make faces to that and we're grossed out by it. Like you said, Megan, it's still this implicit bias that we need to work out of us. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's a career long it's a career long unlearning process, but it is so freaking important <laughs> to recognize mm-hmm. that we have that ingrained in us mm-hmm. um, and we need to undo it. That's yeah. Right. Yep. So kind of switching gears a little bit, maybe not. What is your approach to self-care? Mm, good question. Which I think is just <laughs> going to be the rest of the podcast. We're going to talk about this. 
Yeah. And like not because as a treatment for burnout, please. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think it's so, it's so like entwined in burnout. Well, like, and I think also the, oh, well, you didn't do enough self-care. So that's why you were burnt out when it's like, no, we have these crazy productivity hours that we have to meet. Like I wasn't overworking. Mm-hmm. I was trying to work as little as possible to keep myself afloat while yeah. being burnt out. And like I was doing self-care. I wasn't just not doing anything. It just wasn't working anymore. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's, it is really important to make those distinctions. And I've, I've had this kind of conversation with a lot of people recently. There is, there is an individual aspect to burnout. Like there's stuff that goes on internally, um, that either is, or is not influenced by what's going on outside of us. It can come from our childhoods or our early career experiences, or experiences in other relationships, like all of this is playing a part. Um, and, and when we go into these systems where there are productivity requirements that are not reasonable for most people to achieve, uh, when there's, there's some types of management styles that don't align with our needs as employees, um, all of those things mixed together it can create kind of a mess, um, which is something that I've had to learn for myself. And I've talked with my colleagues about a lot over the past several years of being in internships and being in a professional setting. Um, and when I, when I say talk with my colleagues, I'm, I'll, I'll just kind of call myself out. It's actually been commiserating and bitching about it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean that, and that can, I don't want to, personally go too far down that line of just being irritable and bitching about it with colleagues, but there is some release in that, like, oh my gosh, like we just need to commiserate a little bit here and talk about how frustrating this is that X, Y, and Z is happening. Um, But understanding those systemic aspects of things, as well as my own internal processes has been really important for me to understand generally what self-care needs to look like for me. And as I've moved into a group practice doing more private practice type work, um, that has looked more like setting realistic expectations of myself, um, kind of in a way, forcing myself to find other people to connect with people professionally, um, because private practice can be isolating. If you don't have an established relationship with the people you're working with, um, and and for myself, the group practice where I work, we don't have consultation sessions. Um, I get supervision only because I'm at that associate level. And once, once I get my license, I can request time for supervision, but it's not, it's not built in. Right. So it's, it's isolating. Um, so part of my professional self-care is finding people to connect with. Um, that's quite honestly, the podcast that I started is sort of a form of self-care because it was stuff that I'm still actively dealing with. Even if I'm in a better environment for myself, there's the savior complex. There's the, um, flexing my schedule to accommodate the needs of my clients rather than just having set hours for myself yes. and saying, I struggle with that. So much. it's so hard. And, and I, and I can say like, 
part of the process for me in talking about burnout and having a podcast and coming on stuff like this is it helps me reflect on what I've done and what I'd rather not do in the future. So like I, I've had situations where a client may text me to cancel that day and I'm like, oh, okay, but I have, I have an appointment available tomorrow. Do you want to come in? And they'll be like, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> <laughs> I told you that I had a conflict today just to have an excuse. I just don't want to come in, which is mm-hmm. fine. You don't want to come in. That's cool. You know, I can say that now, but when cool I'm point, in the moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can feel, it can feel hard in the moment to accept that. Um, but yeah, just really evaluating how I interact with the work, how I'm approaching the idea of being a helper. So am I crossing that line from being a partner in their care to being, you know, the, the one pushing the care or the savior, um, just noticing how it feels for me when I'm doing that, which is typically frustrated, feeling stuck, feeling like, oh my gosh, why are they not listening to me? Those are all really good signs that I'm, I'm overstepping a little. Um, and just really trying to get better at time management because I 100% put off my notes until the last day of the week. And when I sit down to do them, I'm like, I'm going to open up Facebook for a second though. Um, it's just not helpful. (laughs) Um, and outside of work, I have been working really hard on connecting with my fiance in a way that feels genuine about the things that I'm struggling with at work without overloading him or just droning on. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the summers, we try to go for nighttime walks. We're in the country. There's a lake by us. We sometimes go walking through the cemetery. It's properly creepy. I love it. Um, Sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I've noticed a few times that I've taken up a a large portion of the walk talking about how frustrated I am or how I'm feeling about my work and my, 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 and I've had to just kind of stop and say, wait, tell me about your day. So like kind of forcing myself to step away and say, he doesn't want to hear about it all the time. I'm tired of talking about it all the time. Forcefully redirecting my mind onto something else. Um, yeah, I think, I think those are probably the bigger processes for me on top of trying to sleep well, trying to eat well mm-hmm. within my limits, whatever I can do. Um, yeah, just all that good foundational self-care stuff too. <laughs> nice. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can really identify with that kind of scramble, like especially in earlier, earlier stages of my private practice journey that like somebody canceling or somebody doing something and you just wanting to like reach way across the aisle and just accommodate, accommodate, accommodate when the accommodation is not the issue, but it's, it's hard to break that habit of responding in that way. It's very Mm -hmm. hard. Yep. Yeah. Like Mm 3am. I could do 3am. No problem. Every day. Sure. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that severe, but it's like, you know, I'm sure it's happened. And, and I think part of the, the, also that like savior complex is like, well, if I'm not bending over backwards, then what am Mm -hmm. I doing? Mm -hmm. Um, and that is also a journey to kind of remove from like, oh, wait, there has to be some sort of boundaries in this relationship. It can't just be, I'm sacrificing all for this 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
what is a guilty pleasure of yours? Now, you've known us for 45 minutes. I know you want to reveal your deepest, darkest, <laughs> guilty pleasure. But is there anything that you wouldn't immediately admit to other people that you just love the hell out of? Oh my gosh. Um, well, it, it sort of lines up with self-care, so I don't want to be super guilty about it. But so in the mornings, I usually wake up at like seven. Um, and now that school is back in season, my fiance has a son, so we're already waking up early. But during the summer, especially, I would wake up before my fiance. I'd get all my breakfast, get my coffee. I'd go out to the living room. And as like early morning watching pleasure, I would watch like uh, killer in plain sight or like these true crime documentaries or like unusual suspects. So <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Like I just, it's such easy TV to watch, which sounds really weird for true crime, <laughs> no, I know. but no, I get it. Yeah. I think, I think there's a large subset of the population who's like, I listen to true crime to calm down and just relax at the end of the day. So <laughs> maybe that's not everybody, but no, so, yeah, I, I would, you know, that, that used to be people. me, but I got, but I, I was like, I'm a little too scared. So yeah. I yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Also that, yep. <laughs> but yeah, Joanna, waking up a, early. Go ahead. Joanna, do you have a guilty pleasure you want to share today or? Uh, I guess my guilty out? pleasure is again, I'm drinking Spindrift sparkling water, half tea, half lemon, uh, that I ordered specifically with my breakfast to have for today uh because they had it at the place I ordered and you, you ordered know what it's after breakfast beverage yeah <laughs> a lot of, I was like look this is my chance <laughs> um it's not good Damn. that's such a bummer I know but I still like I still like it it's the weirdest thing mm. I have to do a lot of work on myself <laughs> as to why I'm drawn to this seltzer but uh yeah I sort of feel the same way about the LaCroix coconut flavor. Like I don't actually like it when I drink it, but I just keep drinking. It kind of tastes like sunscreen. Yeah. But I can see, I can see how the the sensory mind could jump there. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Like I was drinking it, you know, I mute my microphone and drink it. And it's, I was like, this isn't good, (laughs) but I still keep, I don't know what it is. This is going to be a journey. (laughs) <laughs> nice how about That's you sarah funny. uh yeah my husband and i are going through like a catalog of nick cage recently can only watch like one or two movies in a row for him but he is a wild wild man and we've <laughs> just had hours of discussions and movie watching of just the catalog of nick cage because he's been in like 70 movies he's been in so many movies and if you, he plays the straight man, he plays the not straight man, he plays the, he plays the crazy man in every definition of the word. And he, you can't, if you've ever watched that episode of Community where they just talk about, we cannot figure out if he's a good actor or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You don't know if he's just like actually like has, is a little bit unhinged and just lets it go on set or if he's, if he's in his, if he's in his method, I don't know. So Nick Cage movies, if you really want to dive into something, it's it's strange. And you're talking it's about Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. Yeah, we uh, yes. we're on a nickname basis. <laughs> yeah. You're basically best friends. Basically. <laughs> what is your least favorite therapy phrase? Mm. 
Probably. What is that? How, how does that make you feel? I mean, I feel like that's like super typical, but how does it make yeah. you feel? Or, hmm, I see. Which I use that a lot anyways, mm -hmm. but every time I hear myself say that, I'm like, no, what, what do you see? Stop. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I just Probably do the, hmm, and I sit back a little bit. Hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's good. I like Head that. nod. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I shared that with you, Joanna, but Megan, I have a client way back when who had said to me, I just, if you say, hmm, again, <laughs> I think you said it, yeah. <laughs> and I said, hmm. <laughs> it's the worst when you can hear it in like the feedback from the speaker on telehealth. You're like, oh, <sighs> so basic. Yeah, that, yeah. That echo is killer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite therapy outfit or, or, and what kind of cardigan is it? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> soon cardigan soon. Oh, yes. So yeah, well, I have to say just being able to wear kind of what I want is my favorite. Um, mm -hmm. Right now at the group practice, the owner, I'll say he's just a little more old school. And so he prefers like business casual. So I don't have to wear suits or anything, but he requested no jeans. And I was coming from mm -hmm. like wearing jeans every day. It's like, darn. Um so I think just whatever makes me feel comfortable, which in the fall, I do have just this very large sweater that comes down almost to my knees that I can wrap in and just kind of like, yeah, it's fantastic. Heaven, <laughs> I'm so ready for that. It's yes. like a hundred degrees here. So. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. With humidity. <laughs> like oh, we get to 100 because of the humidity mm -hmm. yeah yeah weather in the northeast like many places is just constantly tolerable just yes yeah same good. with the midwest yeah, yeah. do you have any questions for us um i mean did you learn anything that you didn't know about burnout when you were doing the the history lesson because there's a lot of stuff that i didn't know it's like oh that's super cool yeah yeah i just how it was immediately not accepted by the powers that be that's mm -hmm. very on brand for the powers that be they haven't changed <laughs> yeah they, when new things are presented it is often met with you know this is this is pop psychology or this is just a trend yeah and most of the time those things are just things that we haven't had a name for yet so that was that was something that I learned mm -hmm. yeah I mean I was thinking like it's weird that there's no official diagnosis in the DSM because mm -hmm. like I feel like there should be as a person who experienced pretty severe burnout like yeah. <laughs> I feel like there yeah. should be yeah absolutely maybe the next one right fingers crossed yeah do we have a year for that soonish uh, yeah let's write a letter knows? All right. yeah. what is a resource that you feel like everyone should know about hmm so there are two books that I would recommend mm -hmm. to anybody who, um, who wants to know more about burnout, um, helping themselves through burnout, helping other people. Um, the first one is Trauma Stewardship by, I think I'm, I hope I can pronounce her last name correctly, but Van Der Newt Lipsky, I think is how you say it. Um, that was a really 
fantastic read for me. Um, partially because a lot of the things that the author goes over in the book, there were moments for me where I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I'm feeling. Oh my gosh, this is what I'm feeling. Oh crap. Like, but it was also, um, it was eye-opening in a good way. So that one can apply to burnout, but also to things like compassion fatigue and vicarious traumatization. Um, and it's a really good resource to just kind of learn how to how to manage those things um, as you work in this field. Um, and it doesn't just apply to mental health professionals, but she does talk also about climate advocates, advocates um, and, and folks who work, who basically work with those who, who need resources and help and who have experienced trauma. Um, and then another really good book is, it's just called Burnout. Uh, and it's by Nagoski and Nagoski. So it's two, two sisters who wrote the book. Um, and they go into talking about um, completing the stress cycle, which was a new concept for me, uh, which is really cool to learn about, you know, just the physiological uh, things that happen when we are stressed and burning out and how you can use Kind of use your physiology to your advantage in some ways to complete your stress cycle um, and maybe not fix everything completely, but at least not be stuck in that heightened state on end. Yeah. Awesome. Great recommendations. Thank you. Yeah. We'll put those on our website for folks to look at. What is the most embarrassing thing that has happened to you during a therapy session? Yes. Yeah, so, um, two things, and this is during internship. So, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, it was horrifying at the time. Um, but the, the first one I'd say is, uh, the time when a client literally fell asleep while I was talking to them during a session. So they're in their chair and they just, they just set their head back and close their eyes. As I was asking a question, it's like, well, Okay. <laughs> um, that was There's great. So much to that. <laughs> I know. Um, so that was embarrassing, but in retrospect, being able to process, there's a whole lot of other stuff there. Um, and the second would be same internship site. I think maybe even the same client. I just didn't have luck with this client. Um, I had one of those sudden cough attacks. I could not control it. And I had to leave the therapy room after coughing for about 30 seconds. I had to leave and run down the hall to get a drink of water. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, they were just like, are you okay? Like, is everything you dying? Like <laughs> that was, my face was red for the rest of that session. So <laughs> I, if it helps, I have left so many sessions because of coughing attacks. I, it uh, it stopped after leaving the building that I was mm -hmm, in. Could, mm -hmm. could have been mold, could have been whatever, but I have had to excuse myself so many times that it doesn't feel great, but yeah, gotta happen. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. <laughs> oh. All right, yeah. nice. Um, do you have a favorite breakfast? Favorite breakfast? Um, I like a good eggs Benedict. Ooh, mm -hmm. yes. Good mm -hmm. answer. Yeah, especially 
if you go to one of those fancier places and they actually make the muffin or they have like salmon on it, that's kind of a, a luxury. Love it. <laughs> I was just laughing at Joanna's face. Yeah. I love. Joanna's like, I need a new brunch partner now. <laughs> I love that salmon, Benedict. So uh, good. When I, I had that. When I um, I went to Hawaii with my then. I think boyfriend, fiance, I'm not sure, and mm-hmm. his family. And for the breakfast buffet, every morning it was a different type of eggs benedict. Oh my god. I uh I ate my full eggs benedict <laughs> that trip. Mm. And sometimes it was salmon. The salmon is just so good on it. It's like the perfect combination. <laughs> it's so good is what I mouthed silently. Oh, oh, um. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are we we ready okay here we go so would you rather you can see into the future but you can't tell anybody what happens or you can read minds but you always have to reveal what you know to that person oh my gosh that's a really hard one i know um I can see the clinical application of revealing what people are thinking and (laughs) how awful that would also be, um, especially in couple sessions. Uh, (laughs) I think I'll pick the first one. Um, Yeah, seeing into the future and not being able to say anything about it. Yeah, that's tough. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I think there would absolutely be situations where I absentmindedly read someone's mind and I'm like, oh shoot. <laughs> now I have to tell them they were thinking of eggs Benedict. Um, <laughs> Cause that's all that's what's on my mind right now. Um, yes. I guess I would go telling a teacher. I know. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah. I, I mean, we're talking micro and macro level here, but Sookie Stackhouse's experience on True Blood <laughs> lets me know that I don't want to read anybody's mind around me. I mean, I still wearing sweatpants get beat that when I'm walking down the street. So, you know, I'll just stick with now in the future, not being able to tell everyone. By this time, we should know how to make good decisions about the future. It's not my responsibility. <laughs> yes. Right. right. Absolutely. Also, that's my second Sookie Snackhouse reference. Yeah. And I, I refrained from saying night. her name the way they say it in the show this time. Sookie. I don't think you could hear it in the other one, but Sooker. Yeah. Uh, wait was it on here that i talked about her yeah oh wait i talked <laughs> about her three times episode. this weekend <laughs> very cool that was Sookie's my first on, pandemic i'll read TV your show, mind so. tell you sookie's on your mind <laughs> amazing all right well thank you so much megan thank you for being with us and talking with us about burnout i'm sure we will have future conversations about burnout um because it's so important to have yeah absolutely well thanks for having me on i think it was i liked this conversation it's good good all right good we're so happy to have you thank you for listening to the show be sure to subscribe, rate, review us on Stitcher and Spotify. Oh, and <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Oh, shit. You can check. I'm not starting over. You could check us out on Instagram. That was TNG more Pod. of an excited. That was more of an excited uh, insert. 
or on Twitter. Finally. Therapist ND Pod, all one word, or visit our website at TND Podcast. And we are excited to be on Apple Podcast now. Yes. Finally. Finally. If you would like uh, the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests and exclusive looks into Sarah and Joanna playing the ungame for kids and teens separately. An upcoming review of horror movies. An upcoming review of horror movies. And like so much more, mm-hmm. you <laughs> like so much more. Uh, <laughs> you uh, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash TND podcast. Uh, you can also send us an email if you'd like. Uh, our email is therapistnextdoor at gmail.com. Until next time. We, we are, are your, your therapist, therapist next door. Next door. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>